Now, the verses that led up to uh, our passage, beginning at verse 26, Jesus said that he was sending his disciples as sheep into uh, the midst of wolves. And more properly speaking to his apostles, these, these 12 that have been sort of uh, called out or carved out from among the many disciples who are following Jesus, uh, he's sending them into the midst of wolves. And his intention was for the apostles to bear witness to him so that these wolves into which he's sending them might be transformed into his sheep. But he warned them as he was sending them out that as they faithfully bore witness to him, they could count on being persecuted for their faith. But in the midst of those warnings, in the midst of of really what were not threats from Jesus, but but what were coming threats against his apostles, in the midst of these warnings, he promises them that those who endure, endure to the end will be saved. And you remember that one of those 12 did not endure to the end. But Judas, he not only denied Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. He did not endure to the end. He was not saved. In verse 25 of that passage leading up to our sermon passage, it ends with these words. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those in his household? Now, we have to acknowledge a couple of things right from the outset, that both the passage in Jeremiah that we read from Jeremiah 1 and the passage here, it's properly, formally, uh, directed at apostles. Uh, the passage to, to Jeremiah, it's directed at Jeremiah as a prophet. And, and the New Testament apostles are the equivalent of the Old Testament prophets. But there are various uh, clues in the passage in Matthew's Gospel that make it clear that Jesus is not speaking only to the apostles, that, that none of what he's saying to the, the twelve that he's sending out, that none of that applies to the general believer, someone who may not be called in that day as an apostle, or, at least, or in our day as somewhat sort of a successor to the apostles, those who serve in the, the ministries of the preaching and the teaching of the word. But so don't think that just because he's talking to this select group of men that it doesn't apply to you as we talk about this. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, much, how much more they malign those of his household. You are in his household, in the household of the master. And it may very well come to pass that you will suffer persecution because you believe in Jesus Christ. In repressive regimes, regimes they don't always just go after the, the guy standing up in the pulpit. They want to repress the whole religion of Christianity. And so we think of our brothers and sisters in Eritrea, who entire congregations were thrown into prison. In China, entire congregations have been thrown into prison. God promises you that His Spirit will be with you there, and that He will give you the words. And that's what we read. Those first words of our passage this morning are, So have no fear of them. Now, just reading what we, what we just read, hearing what we just read, it seems like Jesus has just given his disciples every reason to be fearful of their persecutors. These persecutors are coming. They persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And his disciples, are, his, they're remembering this as they're reflecting upon the fact that Jesus was persecuted to death. They're remembering these things. And if anyone other than Jesus were speaking, anyone other than God in the flesh were speaking, that person would probably have said, so when you fear, but not Jesus. Like God has always told his people, he says here, fear not. In our passage, Jesus is drawing a conclusion from the previous passage. But his focus isn't on the immediately preceding verses. His focus is on the primary subject of the preceding verses. And what is, or rather who is, that subject? 
Well, his primary subject is not the ones who persecute you for your beliefs. The primary subject is Jesus himself. He is the reason people are persecuted. The world hates Jesus. And a servant is not greater than his master. But God is greater than all of your enemies. As C.H. Spurgeon said, let us fear the greater and we shall not fear the less. Well, that brings us to our proposition statement this morning. This, this uh, statement that I would ask you to consider as we work our way through. Have no fear when you confess your faith to other, a faith in Christ to others, because your Father, who has power over life and death, loves you. Let me say that one more time. Have no fear when you confess your faith in Christ to others, because your Father, who has power over life and death, loves you. The sermon has three parts. The first, proclaim. The second, proper fear. And the third, confession or denial. Again, the first part of the sermon, proclaim. The second, proper fear. And the third, confession or denial. So let's look at this first part of the sermon now, proclaim. As we've already seen, Jesus starts out in verse 26 telling his disciples not to fear. Because we've been adopted as God's sons and daughters through Christ Jesus, our Heavenly Father protects us. That's what he's telling them. Now, even if you don't have children, even if you've, you've never seen your own child, if you do have children, get picked on or bullied, you can imagine what your reaction would be if put in that circumstance. You're watching your child out on the playground, and you see your child getting beaten up by someone else. What are you going to do? You're going to step in. Even if you're not supposed to, according to the laws of the state, you're going to step in. I've seen mild-mannered mothers become mama bears when one of their children is endangered. You know, maybe even seen that of my wife a time or two. Uh, meek and mild women, when they see their child in danger, they can be very fierce and you know, even bow up a bit on those who would do harm to their child. Well, Jesus is saying that his disciples should have no fear because their Father in heaven is there with them. He's there with you. He protects you with perfection. There's no hesitancy. There's no weakness on God's part. He will never be overpowered or outmaneuvered by one who threatens us. Therefore, Jesus is saying, you can bear witness about Jesus without fear. You can be bold. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is, is are we afraid of, of God or are we afraid of all these other human beings, creatures, men, dust? Who are we afraid of? But there's an additional reason for not having fear when we talk to others about our faith in Jesus. Jesus says, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In other words, those who persecute God's people, the wolves... They will be exposed as the wolves that they are. If not now, then on the last day. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.24, The sins of some, some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Now, An integral part of anyone coming to Christ is for that person's sins to be exposed, for that person to confess his sins, not only to the Father, which he should, but certainly sins that have affected other people, hurt other people. He needs to confess those sins to others. He must acknowledge and repent of his sins as a part of a true confession of Christ. 
Some of those who actively persecute his disciples will end up confessing him as Lord and Savior. Paul himself is example number one. And that is the purpose for which Jesus is sending them out into the wolves. He's sending his apostles to the wolves. So that some of those wolves, if not all of those wolves, will come to have faith in Jesus Christ. But Jesus elaborates on the disciples' role in exposing sin in verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus had many such uh, uh, times with his disciples where he would speak to them one-on-one as a small group. And what he's told them in private, what, what he's told them in this private ministry to his, those 12, he's saying proclaim it now to all. Stealth, cunning, deceit, these are the tactics of wolves who, tactics of wolves who use uh, them to capture and devour their prey. But Jesus is saying in these verses that he will give his disciples the words that they are to speak that will fully expose those wolves. But they will also have the impact, Lord willing, of converting those wolves. Well, Jesus is expanding on what he said back in verses 19 and 20. We're not to be anxious about what we are to say when we've been delivered over because God through his spirit is going to give us the words to say. We have a perfect picture of what Jesus is talking about in the opening chapter of Jeremiah when God is calling Jeremiah to prophetic ministry. In our scripture reading from Jeremiah, we read about how the Lord told Jeremiah that before he was born, God had set him apart to be his prophet. Jeremiah started making excuses, telling God that he was just a boy. He didn't know how to speak. Don't don't put me in this role, similar to how Moses tried to get out of what God had called him to do. But God told Jeremiah in verse 7 of Jeremiah 1, Do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. What is it with the Old Testament prophets? That when God called them to to carry out this ministry of of prophesying, this ministry of of, of working with people, they ran away from it. They tried to to deny it. Moses, Jeremiah, Jonah. Will we be the same? In verse 9 of Jeremiah 1, the Lord touches Jeremiah's mouth and says to him, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, admittedly, there is a difference between the prophetic utterances of Jeremiah or the words spoken by the twelve apostles and what we might say to a co-worker about believing in Christ. But the idea is the same. As you're given opportunities, as you're gathered around the the water cooler at work, if that's even such a thing uh, anymore, the Lord may provide you with opportunities to talk about your faith in Jesus Christ. And you'll have the words. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about what they might say. Don't worry about uh, being cast out from the in-group in your work. Show them you love them. Talk to them about Jesus. Don't go around saying, however, thus saith the Lord to your co-workers. But rely on God's Spirit to use your words to convict sinners to bring about repentance and faith. We're not prophets or apostles in the the Old Testament or the New Testament sense, but we do have one thing that they didn't have. We have the completed canon of God's Word. We have the full revelation of God Himself to us. And none of those who were mentioned in Scripture, who even participated in the writing of Scripture, none of them had that benefit. And as we store Scripture up in our hearts, 
The Spirit uses the Word to minister to others. And so because of God's protection, because of God's faithfulness in giving us what we need to say, we can be fearless in proclaiming His Word from the rooftops or, as it were, in the office. That brings us to the second part of the sermon, proper fear. In verse 28, Jesus tells his disciples a second time not to fear. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He's telling his disciples that there are limits to what those who may persecute you can do to you. Now, granted, he's admitting that one of uh, the limitations don't stop before you might be put to death for your faith. But Jesus is saying that's not the worst that can happen to a person. Don't fear the ones who might even go so far as to put you to death. Don't fear them. There's something worse. There's someone worse that you ought to fear. To the world, physical death is the worst possible thing imaginable. And to the world, it must be avoided at all costs. Even those who are convinced that the world is becoming overpopulated, even those who are convinced that we have to do something about all of the people and all of the destruction that is happening, even they will say... We need to get rid of some of these people, but not me, not me, but we need to get rid of some of these people. And who is it? It's the hoi polloi. It's the, it's the low, uh, the, the gentle and lowly. It's the people down uh, close to the ground, The, the undesirables that are often the ones who are eradicated when these efforts uh, come to fruition. But this search for the fabled fountain of youth, it continues to the tunes of billions and billions of dollars spent by those who are hoping to slow the decline of their bodies, those who are hoping to elude death. And there are all kinds of plans that are in place, chips being implanted in brain, uh, uploading of consciousness to some sort of cloud so it can be downloaded into a new body and a new brain. Sounds pretty scientific and sci-fi and dystopian, but people are talking about it and wanting to do it. But Jesus is saying that the death of the body is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. It's the worst that persecutors of Christians can do. But Jesus is saying, don't fear them. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, who is Jesus talking about here? Some people would read that passage, and maybe you have. I'm sure I did. Read it, and you think, well, Jesus is talking about Satan here. You need to fear Satan. Can Satan destroy your body and your soul in hell? No. Jesus is not telling us or telling his apostles and telling those in later years to fear Satan. Only God can destroy soul and body in hell. Brothers and sisters, hell is not the absence of God as some like to describe it, the utter absence of God. It is certainly the absence of the love of God and the grace of God. But it is God who, who fans the fires of hell. It is his wrath. It is his justice. And Satan is not the one who is in charge of hell. Satan is being punished in hell along with all of those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus is saying that your persecutors cannot touch your soul, but God has the power to cast your soul and your body into the eternal fire of his judgment. And when you think of it in light of that, what your persecutors might possibly do to you, it's really not that bad. It's really not. 
Of course we ought to do all that we can to preserve life. Jesus says that if you're persecuted in one town, you flee to the next. It's not that you just hand yourselves over and say, okay, it's my time, go ahead and crucify me now. But if they should apprehend you, if they should lay hold of you, Jesus is saying, don't fear them. Don't fear man. Fear God. Trust in God. Anyone can harm the body, but only God has the power over the soul. And so God is the real threat. He's the one that you ought to fear. But those who properly fear him have nothing to be afraid of. Well, what does it mean to fear him? Well, Jesus is going to help uh, illustrate this in the next few verses. He says in verses 29 to 31, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. In these verses, Jesus is using an argument very explicitly from the lesser, the sparrows, to the greater, you, the apostles, his disciples, you, God's children, And so he talks about sparrows, which are worth very little in man's estimation, but God oversees even the lives of the little sparrows. God is sovereign over the smallest of details. Not one tiny little insignificant bird in in our estimation can fall to the ground apart from God having willed it to happen. He is sovereign over all things. But then Jesus turns his gaze from the sparrows to the disciples. He says that all the hairs on their heads are protected. They're numbered. For the believer, God is not a threat. He's our sovereign protector. Now think about this for a moment. We tend to study in detail the things that we care about. The things that we we value, we get to know with specificity. If we love a type of car, we'll get to know that car inside and out. We'll know it intimately. The things that you love you know very, very well. If we love a person, we want to get to know everything about that person. And the same is true of our Father, His love for His people. So you can read that passage that every hair on your head is numbered, and you can take it in an invasive way. When I was in the Marines, one of the things that I hated the most was the, were the the barracks inspections, the wall locker inspection, the foot locker inspection. Why was that? We had to have everything measured exactly right. We had to fold our, our skivvies, our, our t-shirts and our underwear exactly, precisely, in, a, in, a, in an exact manner. Every a specific number of things uh, folded in an exact way. And, and what did we end up doing? We just bought two of everything or multiples of everything. We had things that we would never wear that were just for our wall locker inspections. So we could pass the inspection, and then the things we would actually wear, we, that's what we wore. And we, those were thrown in a bag somewhere uh, in, a, in a wad, um, because we knew what they would inspect and what they wouldn't. That was an invasive kind of inspection. That's not the kind of inspection that our Father does of us. He knows everything about you, not because He's going to persecute you over it if you're out of line on something. He knows everything about you because He loves you, and His full attention is turned upon you. He's interested in you, if you want to look at it that way. He knows every single hair on your head. Not because, or so that he can pluck them out one by one. Because you are his child. You belong to him. He cares about you more than he cares about the sparrows. He cares about you. He loves you. And so if you have a proper fear of God, you have absolutely no reason to be afraid of anyone or anything else. I know that that's easier said than it is done. I know that. 
I'm talking as much to myself as anyone in this room. Having a proper fear of God means that you love Him because He loves you. A proper fear of God means a love of God, a respect for Him, a reverence of Him. But it's all based in love. It's all rooted in His love for you and your uh, responsive love of Him. Psalm 103 verses 13 and 14 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You are dust, brothers and sisters. God loves you dusty people. He loves you. And it's not an invasive, harsh love. It's true love. It's not controlling, manipulative love, abusive love. It is true love, gentle love. The love that a father has for his children. And so you know with certainty that nothing can happen to you outside of his will. You know that his will for you, whatever might happen, Whether it can be classified in the categories of good or bad, whatever happens to you is for His glory and for your good. It's for your own benefit. There is no safer place for you than resting in the knowledge that your Father loves you. Therefore, you can fearlessly proclaim the good news of salvation because for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Even the harm that is intended for you by those who hate Jesus will work for your own good. And in the process, God may even use your words to turn those persecuting wolves into his sheep. So fear not. That brings us to the third and the final part of the sermon, confession or denial. In verse 32, Jesus draws another conclusion. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, if you faith, saying that if you faithfully speak my words, if you proclaim from the rooftops what I've given you to speak, if you acknowledge or confess me before men, I also will confess you before my Father. And we're often very timid about talking to other people about about Jesus. But what if those original disciples of Christ had refused to confess him before men? We think about Peter. Think about him when he had fairly insignificant people in the grand scheme of things talk to him and say, now, weren't you one of his disciples? He had a little slave girl, someone whose testimony could not even stand up in a court of law. Say, weren't you one of his disciples? And what did Peter do? No, that wasn't me. No, no, that was somebody over there. Go after him. He he denied him. He denied him three times. What if Peter had persisted in that denial? What 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 if everyone, out of fear of man, refused, all of those apostles refused to confess Christ? Humanly speaking, the Christian faith would have died out. Now, humanly speaking, speaking in those terms, the Christian faith would not have been a true faith had that happened. God would not have ensured the perpetuation of the true faith, and so it would have died out because it's not true. The reality is that those apostles, they had to, with the exception of the one, they had to confess Christ. Even Peter, he did. So think about that for a moment. What if the apostles had been like we are? They had much more reason to be afraid to speak the truth. 
But think about this. It's sadly fascinating that we live in one of the freest countries the world has ever known. We have very little, still very little religious persecution. And yet we are very timid about talking to other people about Jesus. There, there is a social cost at this point. Certainly. But Jesus tells us to count the cost. And do it anyway. Count the cost, but love your neighbor enough to talk to them about Jesus. Count the cost. But love your neighbor enough to get involved in their messy, messed up lives. And love them like Jesus loved them. Thank God that those apostles said like Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Are you ashamed of the gospel, brothers and sisters? Are you ashamed of it? Are you embarrassed by Jesus? Do we believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes? Do we believe that? Because if we do... Then there are implications for us. It has consequences. Jesus says, in essence, if you confess me before men who are only capable of harming you physically, I will confess you before my Father in heaven who has the power to destroy both body and soul. Now, in one sense, it's a very small thing to confess Christ to other people. Who are men that we should be fearful of them? But in another sense, confessing Christ to others is huge because God can use our confession to draw sinners to himself. Ultimately, acknowledging or confessing Christ to others is an an integral part of a true profession of faith in Jesus. And so that doesn't mean you have to go around and stand on the street corner with a Bible in your hand. But what it does mean is when people ask you, why on earth do you have this hope? What's different about you? If indeed something is different about you, there should be something different about you. You do have hope as a Christian. You should. What is different about you? What's the reason for this hope that you have? If they ask you that, guess what you can say? Because Jesus Christ, despite my not deserving it, he saved me. He had mercy on me. So Jesus has been telling them that these apostles will be persecuted because they bear witness to him. What if these apostles had feared persecution, they'd gone back uh, to catching fish, collecting taxes, walked away from what Jesus has said, well, we would be in major, major trouble. And so Jesus says, if you acknowledge him, he will acknowledge you before his father. But, he says in verse 33, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. I've already hinted at this, but as the Apostle Peter says in his first letter, you must be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that that is in you. And the Lord, as he sees fit, will give each of us opportunities to give a reason for the hope that we have. But that doesn't mean that there won't be occasions when we fail to give a reason for our hope. He gives you opportunities, and hopefully by the grace of God you take those opportunities You use those opportunities to confess faith in Christ, but sometimes you're going to fail just like Peter did. The Father can be merciful even to those who deny Jesus because Jesus died on the cross even for them as a sacrifice for their sins. The sin of denying Christ before men is a sin that can be forgiven through Jesus' death and resurrection. The, The main point is that you don't utterly reject Christ. You don't turn away from Him. 
Remember that Peter, he denied Jesus, yes, but he didn't always deny Jesus. He didn't persist in his denial of Christ to the end. He repented of his sins. Jesus restored him. And Peter became one of the most influential men the world has ever known because of his willingness to confess Christ without fear. Through faith in Christ, you and I have been transformed into the children of God. We've been adopted into his family. God is our father. God loves us. We have nothing to fear from any other human being because God is our defender and our king. And so because of this, we can boldly proclaim what Christ has given us to say. Jesus is Lord. He was crucified and he died, but God raised him back to life. Jesus gives us the ability to confess him before men. And he promises that he will confess us before his father, our father, in heaven. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Allow that good news to give you boldness, even in the face of persecution.